I just want to again tell you thank you. I, I love our church. I love our role in our community. It was, uh, it's been a fun week. This last, it was Wednesday night, right? Our quote-unquote zombie scavenger hunt. Um, it's basically a big game of, of um, obstacle tag that our youth group plays um, at once a year around Halloween time. And uh, we got permission from the schools and from the district to take over the property uh, at the high school and the junior high. Uh, and we had about 70 kids running around uh, for a couple hours Wednesday night being chased by zombies as they made their way through six different stations to do different skills and tasks, as many rotations as they could make. And I was out there watching that. Jeff and I run it. He did a marvelous job putting all the details together. And, and as we're running that, I'm just thinking, we're, we're, we're just blessed. One, to be in a community with such good youth. There was no concern that any of those kids out there, junior high and high school, was doing anything nefarious to the property or to each other. Uh, they, we didn't have to worry about anything going awry on the school campuses. I was so impressed with the community that we're in because we are making a ton of noise uh, and lights and screams and not a, not a neighbor called the police or the sheriff. We're in the ranchos, they wouldn't have showed up anyway, but like none of them. That we have a school district that says, as long as you're investing in the welfare and benefit of the kids out here, have at it. Use our property. What school do you could never do that in Fresno or Clovis? You never. And then we had all these adults in this church men, women, couples running around for three hours in the dark, cold fields between the schools pulling this whole thing off. Just amazing to me. You know what I'm saying? I mean, just, just fantastic. And then the very next day, uh, we do uh, FCA at the high school. And my son Cato's back, and he got to speak at it. And we provided all the pizza. There were 70 high school kids at FCA. And we gave them all pizza on us. Uh, and then we're going right into, on Tuesday, the harvest party that many of you are going to invest time and energy and money in so we could throw that for the community. I just love how invested we are in this community um, and how much we are able to participate in the life of this community. It's going to roll right into Operation Butterball where we give huge turkey meals to anybody who's in need. It just, so just, just let me say thank you. I appreciate you. I love you. Um, and I, I love that we get to do what we get to do in this community. Um, in this study in the book of Acts, I call it unstoppable because it is about the unstoppable work of God, uh, the unstoppable kingdom of God that is being fleshed out through the unstoppable church of God through the indwelling of the unstoppable spirit of God, through the unstoppable people of God. And nothing, nothing that the devil throws at it or that it creates for itself can stop the work of God. It's unstoppable. 
In Acts chapter 10, we saw the conversion of a man named Cornelius. And in that conversion, God showed that anyone who confessed sin, repents, and trusts Jesus for salvation gets adopted into the family of God. That was a revolutionary. We don't understand how revolutionary that event was. Because for the religious Jews at the time, they thought people could be adopted into God's family as long as they converted to Judaism first. And in Acts chapter 10, Cornelius, a non-Jew, is adopted into God's family without ever converting to Judaism. It's the first Gentile convert in all of Scripture. And with his conversion, with his salvation in Jesus... It caused a lot of questions, but it also set the course for the unstoppable kingdom of God to take flesh in the church of God. And with that event, we see the beginnings of the fulfillment of Acts 1.8. Acts 1.8, Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And in Acts 10, with the conversion of Cornelius, and then really we see in Acts 11 going forward, the fulfillment of to the ends of the earth. For the kingdom of God to extend to the ends of the earth, they will realize, and we will realize through Scripture, two things. One, that the kingdom of God is much bigger than our own community. The kingdom of God is much bigger than our own people. The second thing we'll see is that church planting is the emphasis of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God does not advance in the world without planting churches. It's the emphasis, it's the core of the kingdom expression in the world, the planting of churches. And by the planting of churches, the kingdom of God's expression in the world becomes unstoppable. That's one of the reasons I'm so thankful for this church. At the core of who we are is a church planting church. I don't know of another church that gives more time, emphasis, and money, especially percentage-wise, any church in the nation that does more than we do. You probably don't understand this because you don't run in those circles, but the amount of investment that we have in church planting around the world, why? Because that's the kingdom, and we see it in Scripture. And so in Acts 11, we see, we, we see how this thing starts to take shape. And so I, I want to jump into Acts 11, starting in verse 1, the first three verses. The Bible says this, The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, You went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now, they're talking about Peter's experience with Cornelius in chapter 10, that he went into Cornelius' house with a bunch of Gentiles and ate with them. He's reporting reporting to the people in Jerusalem, and all the religious yuckety mucks in Jerusalem are going, what the freak are you doing? Like, you went into an uncircumcised guy's house and hung out with them and ate with them, and they criticized him. Now, when it says they were circumcised believers, these are Jews who came to believe in faith in Jesus, but they didn't understand the kingdom of God and they did not understand mercy and grace. So they criticized him. 
You went in the house and you ate with them. Here's the thing about criticism, especially from religious people. Don't let your religion cause you to criticize God's mercy and grace towards other people. Religious people are real quick to criticize, especially when God is gracious and merciful to other people who are less than them. Don't let your your religion criticize the expansion of God's kingdom. It's his kingdom. He'll allow in anybody he wants who confesses sin, repents, and trusts in Jesus. The fact that they're criticizing Peter because he went into their house, it doesn't mean he just knocked on the doorbell and kind of did a visit. To go into the house means that he fellowshiped with them as close friends. And to the Jewish mind, if a devout, pious Jew were to associate and hang out with someone who was a non-Jew or unclean, it by association made them guilty and unclean by association. And they had to go this huge ritual of cleansing to make themselves ritually pure before God again. It was just this crazy system that they were involved in. And so to go in the house, in their minds, meant Peter was now defiled, according to their religious system of religion. And the fact that he would eat with them, that was the, that's what he was criticized for. He, would, he, he joined them in friendship, and then he ate with them. It wasn't just having a Burger King meal. To, to eat with them in the, in the ancient world was a sign of deep fellowship and deep friendship. And what Peter was doing by entering the house and eating with them, he was saying, Upon, because you've confessed your sin and repented and trust Jesus, you're part of the family now. I'm as loyal to you as I am to anybody else as part of the family. We're family members now. We have this relationship that, that those who are outside the family can't understand. There's a connection. See, here's what I understand about religious people and grace. The only ones who appreciate grace are the ones who are receiving it. And if you've received grace, you understand this. And if you've been a religious person watching someone receive grace, you understand this. The only people who appreciate grace are the ones receiving it. Those looking at it from the outside often see grace as distasteful or negligent. That's how religious people see grace. And that's why so many religious people have a hard time when they come to this church. We are... Now, I just got done praising us for how, how generous we are, but I'm going I'm to praise this in this. We're one of the most messiest churches I've ever been a part of, too. And, and I don't know if you know this, but you're led by a pastor who's one of the most messiest pastors you could ever come across. But that's what grace does. That's what grace is. It's the broken, cracked vessels that God pours his glory into, his grace into, that makes God look really, really good. And if God could use someone like, if God could pick someone like you, I mean, it doesn't make us look good. It makes him look really good. And so, and so as they're criticizing Peter, Peter, it, you read, read the next verses all the way down to verse 18. Peter explains to them what happened. But, but understand something. Peter explains what happened. Peter does not try to defend himself. They're criticizing Peter, but nowhere in those verses, 4 through 18, does Peter ever defend himself. There's a big difference between defending yourself and explaining yourself. 
And we got to understand this. See, when I defend myself, I try to prove to you why I'm right. I come to my defense. It's a big difference from explaining. And if I explain myself to you, all I do is show you how I've been obedient to God. There's a huge difference. If I can't show how I've been obedient, I will try to defend myself. Do you understand? If I, if I can't say this is how I've been obedient, I will try to defend my actions to prove I'm right to you and to me. Now think about it. Most of the relational problems that we get into are because we try to defend ourselves in front of someone else and prove why we're not wrong and prove why we're right. Ultimately, if all I do is focus on my obedience to God, I don't have to worry about defending myself. I don't mind explaining my obedience, but I don't have to defend myself to you. You understand what I'm saying? So listen, if I'm not disobedient, I got nothing to defend. If you're not disobedient, you got nothing to defend. I don't mind explaining what God's doing, but I don't have to defend a darn thing. Do, do you realize that just because someone criticizes or asks you a question doesn't mean they deserve an answer? I mean, Jesus didn't even answer every question he was asked by people. We oftentimes feel like we got to defend ourselves. No, you don't. If, if, if you've been obedient to God, there's no defense. You don't have, there, there's none needed. And so Peter, through none of this, there's huge criticism coming up. He never feels like he has to defend himself at all. All he does is say, look, all I've done has been obedient. And so Peter boils his explanation down to two things. One, he says, everything that's happened, everything in verse 10 was God's initiative. It wasn't my idea. It was God's idea. And then he follows that up and says, I can't oppose God. Like, I don't have to defend myself to you. I'll just help you understand. God did it. Who are we to say no? In essence, Peter says this, all I did was say yes to God on the front end and was obedient as he directed my yes. That's it. I don't defense. That's my explanation. And so, all, so he explains all this to these people. And then they, the light bulb finally goes on for them. And in verse 18, I don't think I have it on the screen, but in verse 18, uh, it says, when they heard this, these people who were, who were making all these accusations, when they heard Peter's explanation, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, so then, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. Repentance. God's granted repentance. That, that's a pretty churchy word, but... but, but but it's easily understood. To repent means two things. It means to turn around 180 degrees and do different. That's one thing that it means. But it also means that there's a change of the heart's attitude. And we have to understand this about repentance because God calls all of us to repent. If there's If there's been no change of behavior, it's a sign there's been no repentance. Because repentance involves a change of behavior. 
there, there has to be a change of the decision of the will to choose to do differently. That's the, that's the fruit of repentance. The problem is when our focus in repentance is on change of behavior alone. And this is where so much teaching and so much discipleship and so much church has gotten wrong because the focus has been on behavioral change. And, And we all know that we can try to change our behavior and we might be able to keep ourselves in check for about a day and a half. But after a day and a half, it's too hard and it's too tiresome. It wears us out and we're right back in the same mess because we've focused on the change of behavior without the change of the attitude of the heart. When the heart changes, the behavior changes. But to change the behavior without a change of heart is a fool's errand. This is how I like to say it. The attitude of the heart always comes before the action of the life. This has to change first before these can change. That's the way it always works. But so much of religion has focused on do different, do different, do different. Stop doing, start doing. And it's neglected the change of heart first. The Bible's very, very, very clear. And this is something I'm trying to teach the junior high and high school every single week. And it's something that we've got to get to. Look what the Bible says. Above all else, guard your heart for everything you what? Do flows from it. See, the activity of our life, the the direction of our life, the activity of our hands, all flows from what is in here, in our heart. Everything we do flows out of this. And that's why the Bible says, guard your heart. Your life's going to follow your heart. So people, we try to change our bad habits. We try to change our addictions. We try to change everything about us without addressing the heart first, and it doesn't work. There's one Bible verse that I'm I'm encouraging the the junior high and high school kids to to remember and to practice. It's real easy for you to remember. I'll tell you, Matthew, the first book of the the New Testament, Matthew. Matthew 1, 2, 3, 4. Matthew 12, 34. Okay? says this. For the mouth speaks what? What the heart is full of. Because the outward expression always follows the inward heart. Have you ever been in those situations where you just react? You knee-jerk reaction. And you think, where did that come from? You know why it's, it comes out that way? Because that's the attitude of your heart. If we stopped and just thought for a moment, we would choose differently. But when it's just a knee-jerk, a knee-jerk you know, text that reveals what's already residing in here. And so this repentance thing that's happened with these people who've come to faith They had a change of heart, a change inside that allowed them to change their behavior, their lifestyle. And that's the way it always works. And so in response to this, they're like, wow, I guess it really happened. Like this mercy and grace of God is so profound. It changed who these people are, and now they're just different. Look what the Bible says in 19 through 21 of chapter 11. 
Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among the Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. This seems to be the standard in in Scripture. When people start boldly talking about Jesus and the grace of God, people come to faith in him. Do you know why this this is significant here? Look at what it says. Some of them, however, from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to teach the Greeks also about the Lord Jesus and the law of Peter. Do you know why this is so important? Can I tell you? This is, this is something from Cyprus and Cyrene. This is why it's important. Do you remember the story when Jesus was, was, was after he'd been whipped and he was sentenced to die by crucifixion and he was told to carry his cross up to Golgotha, the place of the skull to be crucified, and it's like he collapsed uh, mid-journey. What did, what, what did the Roman soldiers do? when Jesus collapsed and couldn't carry his cross. Do you remember? They got a guy named Simon. The Bible tells us in Luke twenty-two twenty-six. Where was he from? Cyrene. Simon from Cyrene. Way back at the crucifixion. See, there were Jews in this far-off land called Cyrene who were God-fearing Jews. And they would travel to Jerusalem for the festivals and the Passover. So Simon from Cyrene had traveled to Jerusalem. He just happened to be there on the day Jesus was going to be crucified. He just happened to be the guy waiting to worship at the temple when this, when this, this commotion began. And these men were being taken to Golgotha to be crucified, Jesus being one of them. He just happened to be the guy that the soldier grabbed out of the crowd and threw him down and said, carry the cross. He carried up to Golgotha, the place of the skull where Jesus was crucified. He was there at the crucifixion. He was there when Jesus was lifted up and nailed to the cross. He was there when Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They just don't know what they're doing. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And he breathed his last. He was there when the Roman soldier declared, surely this was the Son of God. He was there three days later in Jerusalem, because that's where he had traveled to from a foreign land. He was there when Jesus was resurrected. He was probably there in the crowd when Jesus appeared to everybody. That encounter changed Simon of Cyrene's life. So when he goes back to Cyrene, what does he do? He's got a huddle. He says, guys, I can't, you will not believe this God that we go to Jerusalem to worship, this, he's come in the flesh. Let me tell you about my experience with this Jesus who is the risen Savior. He cannot hold his tongue with his huddle. He's had such an encounter with the risen Lord that he goes back and tells men who tell men. And many of them came to, to believe this pro, profound encounter. And, and I was thinking about this this week, and, and this is the question I had asked myself. What has your encounter with Jesus produced in you? 
for Simon of Cyrene? How could people, men of Cyrene, who knew Jesus, be in Antioch at this time in, in Acts 11? Probably because Simon of Cyrene had such an encounter, he went back home and told. And, and I wonder if, if my encounter with Jesus had been so profound that it's produced a profound witness in me, because that seems to be the biblical standard. And I wonder for how many of us we've inadvertently changed the standard that my encounter with Jesus has, has been so that I could advance my own personal agendas. In essence, Jesus makes my life more successful. And that is so bass-ackwards from Scripture. And so as usually happens... Guys back at corporate, here's what's going on at the ground level. And so the apostles back in Jerusalem hear about all this stuff that's going on with these Gentiles and people coming to faith and start hearing about this unstoppable move of God. And they're like, okay, corporate's got to find out what's happening at the ground level here. Got to make sure it's all on up and up. And so they send a guy named Barnabas to investigate. Now we met Barnabas back a few chapters. Do you remember what chapter it was? Any of you remember at all what chapter it was? Chapter 4, good, good recollection. And so, and so we met Barnabas back in chapter 4. And so in verses 23 and 24 of chapter 11, we say, when he, Barnabas, arrived and saw what the, what, saw the what? Saw what the grace of God had done. Not the piety of the people. Not the re- obedience to religious rules. When he saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit of faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. That's the standard. You understand the grace of God, and there's a bold witness. People come to faith. Barnabas had been a part of the church from the very beginning. This is about a decade and a half in. This is about 15 years in or so. He had been there from the beginning. And, and, and his name wasn't Barnabas. His name was Joseph. Barnabas was a nickname. Do you remember what the nickname means? Son of encouragement or son of consolation. Bar, son of Nabas, encouragement or consolation. He, he, he was an encourager. And his first act of encouragement back in Acts 4, if you remember, was the encouragement through his generosity. The church was just starting. They didn't know how they're going to keep the doors open. And this incredible gift of generosity helped them keep going. And, and I haven't told many of you this story, but back in the day, we we're about three years in, uh, and we completely ran out of money. Uh, and Shell and I had invested a whole bunch from the house we sold down in Southern California. We had some people who were heavily invested in us, and about three years in, we ran out of money. And I remember, as not, as some of you were here. I don't know if you remember. I remember on the Sunday I said, look, we got two options. One, those doors are going to be locked next week. Or two, it's up to you. Uh, and and uh, one of my friends, um, Fern Wally, called me that week and said, you don't need to know the details, but some things that just happened for me and Gwen, 
um, and our gift to the church, and he told me what it was. Um, and you don't need to know the amount. You do need to know uh, that it kept the doors open and kept us going. And when I read that story about Barnabas, I thought, that's, that's Vernon Gwynn. For me, at that time in the life of this church, there are Barnabas. It was this incredible encouragement. And, and I, thought, I thought, Lord, if you're orchestrating, this thing had been building in their lives for, for over a decade. They had no idea when any resolution was going to come. And then all of a sudden it popped that week. And I was just so encouraged by their generosity. I think, okay, God, it's your church. I got nothing to worry about. That was Barnabas. And so, and so they, they sent him. And, and, you know, I was thinking sometimes you just need some faithful seasoned people who've been around longer than you to encourage you. Say, hey, don't, you're okay. God's going to start freaking out now. God's been around a lot longer than you have either. And, and his encouragement was to remain true with all their heart. When he said that, what he was saying is this. He's saying, set as your purpose the kingdom of God. Continue, hold on tight, stay with, don't divert, don't back up, don't back down. See, Barnabas had been around from the beginning. And he had been excited and he had seen the new move. And then he had seen some of his friends arrested in the church. And then he had seen the martyrdom of Stephen, and he understood what it was going to take to stay. He understood what it was going to take to be a part of this unstoppable work of God. And he said, I want you to encourage you. I want to encourage you to set as your purpose the unstoppable kingdom. Hold on tight to it. Stay with it. See, the unstoppable kingdom is built by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and unstoppable disciples. And you jump down to the, uh, the end of this chapter and you see the result of all this. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and through the Spirit predicted that severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. So he says, look, God has shown, we don't know how God showed him, but he just showed him that some bad times are coming and it's going to affect all these other brothers and sisters in the faith. This happened during the reign of Claudius. You can look it up. It's in the history books. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Here's what this is all about. There was a need that was beyond themselves. And each of those kingdom Christ follower disciples chose amongst themselves what each one in themselves were able to do according to their ability. In other words, it was a proportional sacrifice because that's what disciples do. Proportionally sacrifice. You decide what you're able to do and then you do it joyfully. This was an incredible Charitable act of generosity on behalf of one people group to another people group. So profound is this. I don't know, you probably didn't realize this. This, this charitable act right there in Acts 11 is the first one in all of recorded history 
of one race of people taking a charitable offering and giving it to another race of people. First one in all of recorded history, done through the church, for the church, by the church. It's no wonder the church is unstoppable. And guys, this is exactly what we continue to do because this is the kingdom of God. Back a while, one of our planters, one of our key planters in Cuba needed another church facility and asked us for money. And we funded that church. We paid for that building, for them to build it. And it is overflowing every week. You will never meet these people. You will never know their names until you get to eternity. And then you will see the fruit of your generosity from doing kingdom stuff like we see in Acts 11. One race of people given generously for another race of people because they're both a part of the same kingdom. It's this church. And it's amazing. And this is what I love about our church. I love the fact that our little church, proportionally, I guarantee you, gives more money and more resources to church planning around the world than any other church. Just believe me at this. And I love the fact that we don't have to, we understand, we don't have to have a coffee shop or a fountain or some big campus and 17 services a day to plant unstoppable churches of God's unstoppable kingdom all around the world. This is what we do because this is what kingdom churches do. And this is the standard biblically. It's not size, it's not influence, it's church planting. That's the biblical standard. And we'll continue to do it. Just this year out of this church, we've supported, called out, and funded two different church plants. Most churches don't do that in their lifetime. We've done two this year. And through Excel Network that I'm a part of, this church has been a part of over a hundred this year alone. Because that's what kingdom churches do. We, we, we do this, this Central California church planning network that I run. And it's for church planters all over the valley who are part of Excel Network. And we bring them together and treat them well and give them gifts and train them. Matter of fact, in a couple of weeks, I'm taking a bunch of them to Phoenix to one of our national get-togethers and the privilege of, of being a part of that and speaking at that. And we're taking a bunch of people with us, a bunch of planters and their teams with us. And we're paying, the, we're paying for everything for everybody. Their, their, their churches aren't as generous as mine is. So we just pay for it all. You know why? It's what kingdom churches do. Man-made churches are selfish Kingdom churches are generous. That's the standard in Acts 11. And I love it. So let me just, I know what time it is, but let me just jump back a couple verses. Can I do that and wrap this up? Verses 25 and 26, just previous few verses. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. This is really significant. I don't want you to miss it. 
They were called Christians first at Antioch. That word Christian, Antioch was one of those places that was, it was, it was just a, it was a rough place. They, they, they loved making fun of each other. They had a really quick wit and a sharp tongue. And so they were called Christians first at Antioch. That word Christian means literally a Christ one or a Jesusite or Jesus people. That's what that means. A Christ one, a Jesusite, or a Jesus people. It, it meant those who carry the identity of Christ in them and on them. And that identity of Christ informed everything about their life. And so to be called a Christian was to be called a Christ one, a Jesusite, or a Jesus person. In other words, Christ was their primary identity before any other identifying character or characteristic. And so what came with the term Christian came the responsibility to live a life worthy of carrying that name. Being a Christian wasn't something you tagged onto your life so you get to go to heaven when you die. It became their primary identity and their responsibility to live a life worthy of carrying that name of Jesus. Matter of fact, one of the first commands God gave his people, you shall not take the name, the identity of the Lord your God in vain, because the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who carries that name in vanity as tacked onto their life. It comes with a responsibility to live a life worthy of carrying the name of a Christ one. Where that name, where the Jesus name becomes even more important than your own family name. And there's a double implication here. They were called Christians first at Antioch. One, it means that that was the first place where anybody called them that name. It was originally meant as a derogatory term. It was meant to make fun of them. You're one of those Jesus people. And they took it, they claimed it as an honor. You're darn right I am. I am a Jesusite. I'm one of those Jesus people. You're darn right I am. But understand how 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 this works. Called Christians first at Antioch or called Christian before any other qualifier of their life. See, I am a Christian first. And in Antioch, they had such a reputation of being a Jesus people that their first identifier and first qualifier was a Christ person. See, if you put anything before Christian... The thing you put before Christian qualifies your faith. That's why I cannot say I'm a football coach who's a Christian. No, because that means football qualifies my faith. I am a Christ one who coaches football. So my Christness qualifies my coachness. Does that make sense? And I make sure that my team knows that I am a Christ one. 
I get the privilege of praying with my team and praying with the varsity team every Friday night. And I, it's always in the name of Jesus. And this last Friday I told them, I read this ancient book, this Bible, it's ancient, that has more truth today than it does ever. And it tells us forgetting what lies behind, pressing forward, to what, looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards hope or call. Like that, that, I'm a Christ one who gets to coach football. During the whole civil unrest of COVID and, the, and, and, and police issues and all that stuff, there was so much emphasis in the Christian community of African-American Christians and white Christians and Republican Christians and Democrat Christians. And it was so wrong because all those things qualified faith. Do you understand what I'm saying? The first identifying factor of a disciple of Jesus is Christ himself. And there are no other qualifiers. They were called Christians first before they were called anything else. And so I have to ask myself, and I would encourage you to ask yourself, does your everything else qualify your Christianity? Or does your Christianity qualify everything else? Where you land on that will have a profound and determinative effect on your relationship with God. First, called Christian. Before businessman, before student, before husband, before wife, before anything. First called Christian. These people, when they were talked about, the first thing out of someone's mouth was, yeah, they're one of those Jesus people. Oh, I want that to be said about me. If anybody were to think about me or talk about me, I would want them for the first words to be out of their mouth. Oh, yeah. Carl? What do you expect? It's one of those Jesusites. If I'm honest with you, there's probably a lot of things people have said about me other than that. And that's convicting. And it has been of late that the Holy Spirit has said, Carl, Christ is your qualifier. Your first identity. And I want everybody to say about me, yeah, well, makes sense. It's one of those Jesus sites. That, my friends, is the biblical standard of disciple. That's the church.
You ready? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these men and women of old that chose to be Jesusites and have no other qualifiers. Thank you for the encouragement of people like Barnabas. I thank you for the faithful of people like Peter. I thank you for those who understood your mercy and your grace. Holy Spirit, I thank you that that you have pursued and that you've infused. Mm. Father, I confess my own sin first. And I thank you for conviction that leads me to repentance. And Father, I repent of all those those times in my own frailty, my own humanity, where I have let other things inform my faith when it could rightly have been said of me a lot of other things other than a Jesusite. And I thank you for the conviction of that so that I could repent. And Father, I ask that in repentance you give me everything that your grace will allow me. And Father, i got to believe that there's some others here who are in that same boat. That for whatever reason we've let a lot of other things about our lives inform and qualify our faith. That we've been a people dot, dot, dot who are also Christian. And, and Holy Spirit, I ask that you would just convict us right now if that's been the case. Not so that we would be destroyed or shamed, but so that we'd repent. And in our repentance, give us all that your grace will allow. Hear these hearts right now. I want to encourage you if you're in this moment and and you're realizing that this Jesus deserves all. I want to encourage you in this moment before him to say, Jesus, I want all of you, but I also want you to have all of me. I choose this day for you to be my sole qualifier. I commit to being a Jesusite, a Jesus person. And I choose to carry your name and carry it well. I submit and sacrifice all other things, all other agendas, all other quirks, all other desires, all other habits. I choose to submit and sacrifice them all. And lay them at your feet. I claim your name over me. And make me worthy of carrying your name well. Help me be quick to repent. Change my heart so I can change my feet. I want all of you and I give you all of me. Father, I thank you for this church. I thank you. For your unstoppable kingdom. We pray over and over, God, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it's already done in heaven. For yours is the kingdom. 
And yours is the power and yours is the glory forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. You're such a good God. In your name I pray, amen. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand as we close out our time together this morning with one more song.